So we're going to look again today. Yeah, don't, don't do what he says. He, he doesn't like Ephesians 2. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to pick on him. <laughs> and we're going to read a few verses, beginning with verse 4. Remember that in chapter 1, Paul kind of, <clears throat> uh, Paul gave us this introduction to all of these things that he was going to talk about and started out with this whole big list of spiritual blessings that we have because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then uh, went on to, in verse 15 to talk about his prayer of thanksgiving for these people and, and, the, and, and what they would have in the Lord. And then when we get into chapter 2, he tells us the way we were. Um, and I, I think I mentioned this, that was actually the chapter of one of the commentators I read. He, I couldn't bring myself to do it because it reminded me of a sappy movie. So, uh, being as old as I am. So, um, uh, but it's true. And that's in the first three verses. He just goes one word, one uh, powerful and profound word on top of another, laying out all of these principles of death. And then in verse 4, we get to this phrase, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness, excuse me, toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to aim to try to get done with this particular passage through verse 10 um, today. We, uh, um, we looked about this. We spent uh, some time talking about the march of the dead and, and how we were uh, without hope and without life. We didn't even have the ability to understand that we were dead, um, and the, and the uh, it was interesting that even uh, the commentators I read were not necessarily modern, but they they all seem to refer back to zombies because that's something that didn't just start with television a few years ago. It goes back so far, and and that uh, goes back f- that far into history, and it described they they used that uh, rather effectively to describe the way we were before Jesus. We were the marching dead. And I I used specifically the word marching. They did not, but I used the word specifically marching because that march of the dead carries with it this organized system called the world that we live in that that has been structured. though Though there is death, there is still activity going on. It's not godly activity. It's not life-filled activity. It's not hope-filled activity. 
its activity of destruction and its activity of further death. But he says here, well, we were dead, but by grace we've been saved and we've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And we use the, we use the word sphere when, when we talked about this difference between life and death. And so here we have this transfer, this transference, this movement, so to speak, from the sphere of death and all that it uh, pertained to and all that it spoke to us about to the sphere of life and life that comes from God. Now, I want to read you once again a couple quotes. I hope you don't mind that I um, read some of this, but I, I want to um, communicate some things that, frankly, I can't say it as well as these authors have, and by reading it, it keeps me from having to print the whole thing out in my in my notes. Um, here's MacArthur talking about this process of forgiveness and the grace of God. He says, only the one offended can offer forgiveness, and only forgiveness can bring reconciliation. Though greatly offended and sinned against, as depicted in the parable of Matthew 18, and that parable, if um, if you remember, if you want to look it up, is the, um, the parable of the man who was forgiven a great debt when he couldn't pay and he pleaded for mercy. His master forgave him the debt and then that man went out and demanded payment from others. And then when the master found out about it, he, he put that man into, uh, 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 punished that man for his, act, for his lack of gratitude. So let me start this again. Though greatly offended and sinned against, as depicted in the parable, because of God's rich mercy and his great love, he offered forgiveness and reconciliation to us as he does to every repentant sinner. Though in their sin and rebellion, all men participated in the wickedness of Jesus' crucifixion, God's mercy and love provide a way for them to participate in the righteousness of his crucifixion. I know we talked about this last week. I know that you are, excuse me, I know what you are and what you have done, he says, but because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my son on your behalf. For his sake, I offer you forgiveness. To come to me, you need only to come to him. Not only did he love enough to forgive, but also enough to die for the very ones who had offended him. Greater love has no man than this than one lay down his life for his friends, John fifteen thirteen. Compassionate love for those who do not deserve it makes salvation possible. Now, it's, it's just a paragraph, and it's probably nothing that you have not thought of before, but, uh, or, or heard before, or maybe even, uh, you know, it occurred to you as you read, as you read these passages. The one offended is the one who can offer forgiveness. And the offended party in all our lives is God. We may have offended others also, but the, the, the one who holds the, the keys of our future is the Lord. And then he talks about the great love that the Lord has. Ironside had an interesting comment on this. I, I read it and I said, man, I wish I had written that. Here's what it says. God loves poor sinners... So much that he sent his son into the world 
to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves His Son so much that He will not permit anyone in heaven who ignores the work that Jesus Christ accomplished. It is only through His finished work that any of us have title to a place over yonder and so our salvation is entirely by grace. God loves sinners so much that He sent His Son and He loves His Son so much that He will not allow us to ignore His Son. That's why... You see, the principle, man, that's great. I wish I'd written that. It's so succinct and it's so powerful and it's so true. That's why Jesus said, we know this verse, don't we? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what? No man comes to the Father but through me. By me, you know, whatever your translation is. John, later in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, he that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. There's no other way. When we were kids in Sunday school, we used to sing, we used to sing that song. There's, you know, there's, there's, let's see, am I going to use these again? Yes. All right. Don't put them on the floor. The floor is too far away. Put them right here. All right. We'll use those again. We used to sing that song. You know, there's no other way. There's no other, and, and how true it is. It's, it's only through Jesus Christ. God has, through His Son, given us a great gift, the gift of salvation. So why has He given us this gift? And that brings me to my title. The title is The Pilgrim's Purpose. The Pilgrim's Purpose. God has through His Son given us a great gift, the gift of salvation. Why? For His glory. Not for us. For His glory. He redeemed us because of His love. He's going to show His love throughout the entire world by redeeming people who weren't worthy to be redeemed. And that's one of the reasons I read that paragraph over again and then added to it there from, from MacArthur about the, the person who was not worthy to be forgiven, but God for, the Master forgave them also. God forgave us anyway because of the work of Jesus Christ. So look with me in, 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 uh, in verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul introduces this. So that we, you know, we get we we get an idea. It says to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So Paul not only talks about this immediate purpose, he talks about the purpose long in the future. So there is something going on. And I know we talked about it when we get there. I'm not going to uh, keep emphasizing it, but we talked about it when we got there. So world without end, coming ages, forever and ever, His church, His bride will serve to give Him glory. So that's why it talks about the riches of His grace. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. This is in chapter 2. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, we're not talking about 6,000 years of history past. If you want to use ushers dating 
We're talking about time without end. In the future, the church of Jesus Christ, those believers, and I, without getting involved in the you know the eschatology of the uh, of deciding who that's all, what that's all going to look like at the end. Those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ will be as a, uh, what, an emblem, an ornament to give honor and glory to the Lord, to reflect God's glory back to Him. So that all can see, I'm going to skip ahead to Ephesians chapter 3. It says, of this gospel, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. I wish Paul knew how to use periods. Who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, period. But I'm going to read a couple more. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now a mystery... In Paul's writings, a mystery is not something that's hidden. A mystery is something that's being revealed. It's just something that's been there that we just haven't seen it before. And hopefully, if you're if you're if, if you pray and seek the Lord, and you, you you have that happen in Scripture, you see things that 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 were always there. You just never realized them. And he says, "I want to reveal this mystery through the church. That's us. That's this age, this time, the body of Christ." And he wants to reveal his wisdom. And you can read more about his wisdom in 1 Corinthians where Paul says the, the, the foolishness, of the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. They don't, they, don't understand, they don't understand what God's doing. But here he says twice he has a purpose and that purpose is to, is to reveal his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So, again, it says it here in verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's going to continue on, we read in chapter 2, but it's already started. The rulers and authorities in heavenly places, all those unseen powers which one day we perhaps will see and we will understand, are now looking at us. They are now watching us to see the glory and the wisdom of of God. Um, heterodoxy or error always, almost always contains an element of orthodoxy or truth, or correctness. So error almost always has a seed of truth. So, um, 
when we hear about the love of God for us and how much God loved us and that He sent His only Son and that God does these things for us and provides for us and and how great and wonderful His love is, that is true. The other side of that coin is that the glory goes to God. It's not about us. When you hear the Christian song that either says it explicitly explicitly or implies implicitly that you are somehow worthy that is error you are not worthy it's all for the glory of God God's purpose is past us now are there benefits that come to us absolutely does God love us Yes. Is it, is it better to walk in suffering? Listen to what the Apostle said. Is it better to walk in suffering so that the eternal purpose of God would be fulfilled than to walk in ease and comfort and miss it? Absolutely. That's why Paul says at the end of this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He says, I stand before the Lord boldly because of all that God's doing, because of His wonderful purpose that it's working out. And, that, and the implication there in chapter 3 is that that purpose makes all of this worth it. Alright, we'll come back to all of this as we close, Lord willing. <laughs> chapter 2. Let's go back and let's, let's look at some of this. I don't think I'm going to say anything that you probably haven't heard heard before. Some of these verses we we memorized in Sunday school. You went to a soul winning class. You memorized them. You had a little you had a little New Testament that had uh, the way of salvation in it, and they were there was a little highlight things in them. And you use this, you know, step one you're here, step two you're here, step three you're here, and you get over here to step four, and then you read these verses. As you're witnessing, we know these verses. But, but let's look at them once again, refresh our memories with them, and let, let the Word of God do its work within us. So he says, So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. I'm reading from the uh, English, English ESV. English Standard Version. I always forget what the, those letters are. So, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own. Doing it is a gift of God, not as all works, so that no man may, may boast. So we'll go, we'll go. We'll talk about that. By grace you've been saved. Grace is a gift. He says it. It's a free gift. So if it's grace and gift are actually redundant terminology once again it's the paul it's the apostle paul lay, you know laying one layer on top of another layer uh kind of like bach wrote those those symphonies just pounding and pounding and pounding trying to get the truth through us so it's a free gift if it's not free it's not a gift now, folks, there's theological reality in here, and you've got to think because there's places later that, or later or that you may encounter in your life where you have to make application of this. If it's not free, it's not a gift. If it's not a gift, or if it's not free, it's probably a purchase or some sort of exchange or maybe a reward for doing the right thing. 
Do this, do this, and I'll give you this. That's not so with salvation. It's free. It's a free gift. It's grace. And he noticed, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's, we've got in here this inter- interesting concept, which is also in chapter 1, about how all of this is in past tense. It's already done. He begins chapter 2, and you were dead. So he's writing to believers, and he's saying you were dead. That's past tense. Salvation isn't something that happens in the future because of what you do. It's something that's happened in the past because of what Jesus Christ did. And you connect with that by faith. We'll come to that in a second. But it's all a gift of grace. It's already done. We're not doing it now. And we're not paying, paying for it or doing it after we die in a purgatory. And all the Lutherans said, Amen. That was kind of a denominational joke there, uh, which, are you guys out there? It's awful, it's awful quiet. I can see you. I see movement. So I, I... It was done by Christ on the cross. In the Old Testament, that whole sacrificial system and the priestly system was pointing forward In the New Testament, we look back. In the Old Testament, it pointed forward to the the cross. When that Passover lamb, that perfect Passover lamb, would once for all time pay for the price. You know in the Old Testament, those sacrifices, even the Day of Atonement, did not wash away sin. The language is very explicit. It says it covers it. It It's like a coat of paint. You know, you buy that house, or you're going to flip that house, and you can't get rid of the mold, so what do you do? Put a coat of paint over it, and hope it doesn't pop back up before the new owners get it. In the Old Testament, it just it just covered it. That's why every year they had to do it over and over and over again. And I, I, I could go on about this. You know, the priests were only allowed to serve a certain amount of time. They started a certain year, and they ended in a certain year. And when we get into the New Testament, the the apostle or Paul or whoever it was wrote the book of Hebrews talks about it very, uh, very plainly. He said these priests were not allowed to continue because they, I'm going to paraphrase this, because they died. But we have a priest who is eternal because he has the power of endless life. So they, 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 they took their sacrifices and then later it started with Passover and then later they had the, the priestly system. Remember, and, and there's just so much here. The priest would walk before God with these 12 stones on his, on his breastplate representing the, the, the 12 tribes. And he'd walk before the Lord and they'd do that thing on the, on the Day of Atonement and they, then they would take the, the, uh, the other goat and confess the sins and send it off in the wilderness where it would die and go far away pointing to the forgiveness that would come to us one day when that perfect lamb was crucified no longer a priest that walks in once a year 
But now a priest that lives, he ever lives to make intercession for us, and he's, and he's not walking into some place. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's seated right there. That's why John says, if we have any sin, we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us. And, and John, in, in 1 John, he uses, he uses the word advocate, uh, which, which is interesting. It's like, you know, it's our, our attorney. He's there, you know, he says, hey, I died for him. Sins are forgiven. So, have been, it's past tense. In the Old Testament, they look forward, and in the New Testament, we look back. And because of the grace of God in Christ, because Christ suffered and died to redeem those of us, all of us who were children of wrath. By grace, through faith. Get on to this next section. By grace you've been saved, through faith. Trusting what God has said about himself, about us, and about his son. Now there's all kinds of other things, but I just want to focus on those three for just a second. Number one, about him. He's the eternal creator. He is the final authority. He is the eternal judge and he is just and holy. If you wanted to sum it all up, you could use the word holy. How holy is he? He's so holy you can't see him. Not that he's invisible. You can't see him because it would kill you. You can't be in his presence. And when Paul talked about the resurrection, he says this mortal must put on immortality. There has to be some change that takes place so that I can stand before God. Interestingly enough, when Jesus went to the mount and was on the mount of Trans- what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and those other people kind of saw him that was that was bright and light, and they had to kind of cover their eyes. Holiness of God. Number two, the second thing about us, that we're sinners, that we're sinners from Adam. There's none righteous, no, not one. Everyone has gone their own way. And that we are, as Paul says earlier in this book, children of wrath. Wrath rests upon us because of our long past parents and we're destined for judgment. Through faith, we believe... uh, Let me back up because I kind of didn't say that. If you don't believe that about yourself, salvation is not going to be applied to you. You can't be saved if you don't know you need a Savior. And that knowledge of knowing that you need... that, That awareness that you need a Savior is a gift of God's grace now saints whenever God speaks to you and convicts you and says you know you shouldn't have done that or you shouldn't have done this or here's a better way to do that respond to it that's what faith does again we'll talk about this in just a second that's what faith does don't excuse it away don't say oh you're just being super spiritual Don't say, you know, people will make fun of you if you do that. If the Lord reminds you that you said something that was offensive to someone and the Lord says you need to go apologize, go apologize to them and ask for their forgiveness. That's faith. Say, well, the Lord will forgive me. 
Yes, the Lord will forgive you, but you're not being obedient. Go be obedient to Him. You have to know from the Lord that you are a sinner. And if you live close to the Lord, you'll be continually reminded that God's still working on you and that process of sanctification is, being, is taking place. So, us. And then the Son, that the Son is perfect, that He's very God, that He's very man. That He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and sacrifices and prophecies and that He is Savior of all. And by believing what the Lord has told us in the Gospel... We become sons of the father of faith, Abraham, and which we which we read about in the book uh, in the book of Romans. We won't go into all that today. I don't have time to go into all that today. But we, we, we become sons of faith. We we enter into faith, and now, as in the Old Testament, and now we all stand before God. If there's righteousness there, it's because of faith. It's not because of what we do. Now, it is common in non-biblical churches to make a God of faith. Um, There are people who pull verses out of context and... And, be, and in pulling verses out of context, tell you that you receive from God because of faith. You're healed or supplied or ministered to or in some other way because you trust God. Um, and then, usually connected with that in those particular instances are ways for you to increase your faith. And we're going to look here in just a second when I get to it here. I was giving you this warning ahead of time. Faith itself is a gift of God. So it's, it's, it's not something that you can screw up through some sort of habit. You can't work it up. It's not some emotional thing. Emotion is not the same as faith. Faith is not positive thinking. I think, therefore, I am. That's that's you. You're all blessings to you if you can positive your think yourself into a fortune. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is a gift of God. How big of faith do you need to move a mountain? The size is immaterial. It's the presence of it. And it, it, it in itself, is a gift of God. Faith doesn't do anything. It's the object of faith that does the doing. The thing that gets moved is, or if, if the mountain gets moved, is because God moved it. If, if there's blessing that comes, it's because God does it. It's only the object of faith that does anything. So we, we, we read this word, and, because, and in reading this word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in reading this word, this word will produce faith in us, 
or an, or an ability to trust God. We'll see things about God. We'll learn things about Him. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe learn to trust Him more. Our faith can be increased perhaps by reading this and by things going on in our heart and in our mind through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that, that, that allow us to grow in that way. But it's all a gift of God. And that's the next verse. It is a gift of God, not a result of work. So I want to back up to this. You can't screw it up. You can't crank it up. You can't make it happen. You can't get up here and have a musical package and make the music. And because of the musical package, people are going to have faith. It's a gift of God. And it's not a result of works. It's not what, it's not what people do. So that no one, let me close this down here, so that no one may, what? Boast. Uh, I, read a, I read a story and I was reluctant to use it because it was very old-timey and parochial, uh, but it was uh, about an old-time preacher who was apparently, before he was a preacher, was a pretty uh, worldly fellow. <laughs> and uh, subject, subject to drunkenness and brawlings. And the Lord got a hold of him, made him a preacher, and uh, apparently he went to one fellow and was talking to this one fellow, and this one fellow said, I, I don't believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that I've done enough good that God will accept me into heaven. And uh, I love this. And the fellow looked at him and said, God will never let you in heaven because you'll ruin the atmosphere. And, and the fellow says, what are you talking about that? As a matter of fact, he, he said to the guy, he said, if you did get into heaven, the angels would grab you by the nape of the neck and throw you over the wall. How's that for a testimony, witnessing? You know, that's when he, so what are you talking about that? He says, because you think that you're good and you think that you're worthy. And the whole atmosphere, now listen to this. I mean, this guy was crude, but he was correct. He said the whole atmosphere up there gives glory to God. It doesn't give glory to man. No man gets glory. It's God who gets all the glory. And if you get there, you'll ruin it, and the angels will throw you over. And I read it, and I thought, well, that old boy was kind of rough in his presentation, but he had the realities of it down pat. There is going to be no one in heaven except people who, uh, this, this is maybe poetic language, but people who live prost- on, on their faces before God in humility, realizing they don't deserve to be in God's presence, realizing that it's only because of, of God's love and because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that they're there. And then, and then, and that's where the story begins, folks. And then there's all of the difficulties of life that they've gone through, and every time they've gone through one of them, whether they realize it or not, the Lord has been right alongside them. And the Lord has given them grace, and the Lord has steered them away from troubles that would have, and we're going to find out about all of those things. And every time we see one of those, we're going to be more broken before God. Every time we see one of those incidents where had we gone where we wanted to go and we couldn't get there, there would have been some disaster awaiting us. 
some, some frustration and we're all angry at the moment and we realize that if we got in our way, we would have been in trouble. We're going to, we're going to be able to see all that. We're, we're going to see all of the times where God saved us and, and blessed us and, 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 and we're going to see all of the times where we said some word that we had no idea we were saying and it went to someone else's heart and it blessed them and we're going to say, I didn't have anything to do with that. God did all that. No man will boast. We have nothing to boast save in the love of God as manifest in the cross. See what God has done. Now, I'm going to bring this full circle, the pilgrim's purpose, and and try to culminate, (laughs) try to culminate this knowing, and you guys know full well that I'll come back to it next week if we don't get it done. So, created, for we are his workmanship. And, and there's so much that could be said here. You know, uh, there's only twice that word is used. And it's, it's the word where we get our word poem. I wish in my heart that I could and I wish for all of you that we could surrender and quit thinking it's all about us and rest in peace because God's in control and God's doing this thing and God knows what he's doing we're his workmanship created in Jesus, in Christ Jesus for good works. I'm going to read the whole thing. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I think that sentence is pretty plain. God created us and he has good works now and in front of us and we're to walk in them. That's God's will for us. Not us doing them. It's God doing stuff through us, and we're doing it because we want to obey and honor and glorify God. He created us for these works, and He did it beforehand. As a matter of fact, we read earlier, this all happened before the foundation of the world. God was creating and doing and thinking and planning and putting all this stuff into place. There is no thought, idea, motivation, etc. that comes from any place but God. You didn't think of it. God put it there. If it's good, of course. So are we to, are we to do good? Yes. And I, I'm abbreviating this. There could be a whole lot said. We do good not to produce salvation, but as a result of salvation. There is no one who can boast. Now, folks, there are subtleties of this that if we started to get into would take us weeks and weeks to cover. You have church friends who go to church and they're told if they want to be a blessing to God they need to do this and this and this. If they want God's blessing they should do this and this and this. There are some folks who don't have enough relationship with God to know what good works they're called to. Let me read to you just a couple more things. Um, these are just paragraphs. They're not whole chapters. 
and then that will be done. I will read to you first from MacArthur. Paul's primary message here is still to believers, many of whom had experienced salvation years earlier. He's not showing them how to be saved, but how they were saved, in order to convince them that the power that saved them is the same power that keeps them. Just as they had already been given everything necessary for salvation, they also had been given everything necessary for faithful living the saved life. The greatest proof of a Christian's divine empowerment is his own salvation and the resulting good works that God produces in and through him. These good works are expected because God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then he says, as he closes the paragraph, and that is why James says, faith is illegitimate if works are not present. Remember that? Now, we, we can't go into that and read all that today. We don't have time. We'll talk about it. If there's questions about it, we'll, t- we'll talk about it later. But he's, he, he's just a little summation. He says, God's done all this for you. God's given you what you need to be saved. God's given what you need to live. And it works by faith. It's not based upon what you do. It's based upon what he does. As he's even made these works. And all you have to do is walk in them. And then I'll read this little passage from uh, Ironside. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Heard that before, haven't you? Do you believe in foreordination? If you are a Christian, you are foreordained to behave yourself. <laughs> Ironside was an old old-timer, I love this terminology. You are foreordained to behave yourself, to do good works, and to live a life well-pleasing unto God. That is, that is what he has marked out for you. Now listen to this. The Christian's pathway is a life lived in subjection to him. You don't know how to live a successful life in Christ? Submit to him. How do you know what he wants you to submit to? You read this book, you get in this book, you listen to good sermons, I hope this was one. You learn what's in this book. You let the Holy Spirit use this book to direct you, to guide your steps. That's why we don't give you a formula for giving, folks. It's good practice to seek God. God, what do you want me to do? So, well, if you're not in the habit of doing that, I encourage you to do it. God, what do you want me to do? Whether you do it at the beginning of the year or you do it every week, what do you, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's good practice in seeking Him and finding out what He wants you to do. It's good to get up in the morning and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What have you got? How do you want to prepare me? What's going Lord, what have you got for me today? And if He says go here, go there. If He says don't go there, then don't go there. Say, well, everybody else is going there. Do what? God, submit to Him. Yield to Him. It's the steps that He's prepared that you're supposed to walk in. Not your own. That's rebellion. And rebellion is His witchcraft. And there is no sacrifice you can give that covers over the rebellion. That's the pilgrim's purpose. To walk 
in those steps because those steps in the end, day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, will be a life that glorifies God. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, there's so much here and I I know that I'm not wise enough to even understand everything that's here and there isn't enough days in, in a month or months in a year to read all the things that have been written and all the different perspectives about the wonderful treasures in these verses. Uh, so I pray, Lord, if we go away with nothing else, I pray we'll go away with the fact that you have a purpose for us, that you have called us, that it's your work that you're doing and all we have to do. It sounds, sounds easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. The simple thing is just to walk in them and submit to you. As Paul said in almost all of his letters, either at the beginning or the end, he refers to himself as a servant or a prisoner. Such are we. We're your servants. We're your prisoners apprehended by you for your purpose to bring glory to your name. Let anything that pulls away from that glory be pulled away from our life. And let all those things that enhance and bless and produce that glory be magnified in us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.